Yeah. I mean, I think both Jeff and I are, I mean, part of having a business and especially farming is risky business, but I think both of us are kind of risk takers that way. But I think if you're doing what you love and it is a service to the community and you're doing it with intention of doing the right thing for the planet and for people and the plants, like you can't really go wrong. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio by Learning Herbs. I'm John Gallagher. And I'm Tara Ruth. Today we're chatting with Elise and Jeff Higley of Oshala Farm. Oshala Farm is a certified organic herb farm in Southern Oregon that uses regenerative, sustainable cultivation practices. The farm is a combination of Elise's passion for herbalism and Jeff's passion for farming. And they tend the fields with their son, Will, and a dedicated crew. You can learn more about their work at oshalafarm.com. Elise and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So many of our listeners are home herbalists who are excited to grow herbs for their kitchen apothecary. So for people who are interested in growing their own herbs, what tips do you have on getting started? Well, I think the first thing I always talk to people about when they want to grow herbs is, um, you know, what herbs do they use most and are in love with? So those are the best ones to have at hand. You know, sometimes those don't always grow in your area. But at least taking a list of what you like to consume the most, like what's your favorite tea if you're like a Tulsi lover or whatever that is, always having calendula on hand is great for first aid issues. But yeah, I think that's the very first thing is just asking people what they like and then just picking a few herbs that they can kind of have fun with and don't be afraid to experiment because some people get really nervous about you know, thinking that they don't have a green thumb mm-hmm. or whatever it is and then making mistakes, but it's okay. Plants are pretty forgiving and if it doesn't work out, just try it again. <laughs> so we definitely had a lot of experiences that way on our own beginning to farm of just experimenting and just trying it out and seeing some plants work really well for you. And then sometimes they don't, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. So Jeff, do you like suggest people start with such as like you know, the soil, if I'm going to make a garden, is, is that something to concentrate on first? Do you think you should go right to the plants and put some plants in what you got just so you can experience stuff? Or should you like think it out and, you know, like get your soil prepared? Yeah. I mean, I think generally most soils that we have in the United States will produce crops, will we'll produce good herbs, especially because herbs are more resilient than a lot of vegetables or more fickle agricultural crops a lot of times. So, I think getting started, getting some stuff in the ground is always a good idea. I I always like to tend to tell people, start with what's going to grow well in your area. We get so often people are reaching out frustrated because they can't grow turmeric in Minnesota. Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a tropical crop. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. So maybe start with something that you know is going to grow well, have some easy wins, you know, something to, to build off of. Jeff always likes to say when we're doing the farm tours is look around what's outside in your in your garden already or in the grass like you have some plantain growing or yarrow or dandelions it's like well that's already growing so you probably have a pretty good chance that you can do it too. Mm, hmm. I love that and I love what you're saying Elise about asking yourself what do I like to grow and then Jeff bringing in what likes to grow here and then mm-hmm. marrying those two those two likes to have a successful garden it's beautiful or even just harvest the plantain i mean it's in your logo of your company a plantain which is probably growing in most places mm-hmm. yeah well why did you put the plantain so sorry why why i mentioned it in in the logo when that's the plant that a lot of people are like, this is a weed. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of the reason of using plantain in the logo is just to signify the power that a common weed can have, Mm -hmm. such as plantain, and that sometimes it's really understated and we just don't really realize the the almighty power of these little plants. (laughs) So there's partly that and um, just simplicity of just, what grows around us, just mm. honoring that, that it doesn't have to be something really mm. sexy and exotic. It can just be <laughs> yeah. happy, happy plantain. <laughs> A good workhorse herb, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. For learning herbs, we have a a dandelion in our Mm -hmm. logo. So it's fun to be with a fellow, you know. Weed eater. Yeah. (laughs) We've used that in other logos in the past. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Another question I have is, you know, for folks who maybe they've gotten a little more experience under their belt, they 
they're feeling like they have a green thumb and they're interested in scaling up and starting an herb farm, what advice do you have for folks who want to start an herb farm? Well, I think I could take some of that. I mean, I think, again, starting with reaching out to maybe some potential buyers and looking at what other people would be interested in buying, whether that's direct to consumer through your local farmer's market or your, you know, your own group of herbalists in the neighborhood or looking up to scale up to where you're actually growing for some small product makers or large product makers, even and distributors. Hmm. First, kind of reaching out and seeing what the needs are. There's nothing like going through a whole bunch of work <laughs> and putting a whole bunch yeah. of money into something and growing something you think that people want to only realize that there's not really demand <laughs> for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like you plant a, a gigantic field of echinacea, then you're like, wait, <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody wants this, you know, this is great stuff. And, and it probably is, but they may have already found their, their supplier for that. Have you guys done that? I'm sensing there might be a story where like, oh my gosh, I love this herb and I, and people want it. Then you grow it. And it's like, where's the market? Or do you do the market research first? <laughs> I wish we had an in with Dr. Oz so we could know what was the <laughs> hot next herb. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely stories to tell on that, but I also just want to say for me, like starting off the very first thing, which we do know firsthand is just testing the soil. If you're going to be selling in commerce mm -hmm. and even for yourself, because yeah. so much of, um, especially farmland in the U.S. and really all over the world is dealing with a toxic legacy. And with organic vegetables, they don't necessarily test that. But in the herbal world and commerce, a lot of companies do. And with good reason, because this is medicinal herbs. So you would not want to be, you know, well, and specifically yeah. testing for pesticides and pesticide residue and heavy metals in those soils. Yeah. So we actually had to find, we, we searched a few different places before we could find land that was clean enough that passed all the tests with flying colors that didn't have any toxic legacy, which was great. But that would be my first thing to tell people if they're starting wow. is just make sure you know your soil for that. So do, do people ever come up to you and ask like, Hey, like I, I have a live in a suburban area or I have a small piece of land or I can lease some farmland from somebody and then ask if they can start that way if they're wanting to scale up? I mean, that's kind of how I started. We started in the suburbs and of course I was growing vegetables, but I got a whole bunch of people who had yards that they weren't using to, you know, turn over into vegetable growing. Now, I think if you live in a more rural area, there's a lot of those opportunities around where you don't necessarily need to own land. A lot of people are looking for people to take care of land. So there's a lot of opportunities like that. I think the biggie is try to find the best soil and the best water you can find. Right. Not only cleanliness, but also just quality of, of the source and the quality of the soil. So I think those are really important factors. A lot of people, especially when they're starting out, end up in suboptimal soils. And that's pretty normal. We all go through that process, but there's nothing wrong with knowing what good farmland looks like and looking for it. Hearing you talk about this, at least this legacy of toxicity in the soil, it's making me think about how Oshala Farm is building this legacy that's the antithesis of that. You're, you're building your soil through regenerative farming practices. And I'm wondering for folks who aren't really familiar with, with regenerative farming, can you talk a little bit about the principles of regenerative farming and how people who can can bring that into their own, whether it's their garden or they're starting a little herb farm. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely regenerative agriculture is a buzzword right now, and it is confusing, <laughs> just like sustainable farming. What is that exactly? But, you know, really what our end goal at our farm and farms that are trying to farm with regenerative practices and sustainable practices is having the least impact we can and on the soil itself and having the land be able to regenerate as much as it can on its own. But that is definitely hard because farming is an extractive industry. You know, we're pulling nutrients from the ground by growing plants and harvesting mm -hmm. them. So it's a fine balance because we want to have healthy plants. We want to be able to get the yield that we need to be able to financially sustain a farm as well. So some of the practices that you can bring in on a farm scale or at a home scale is just having, you know, disrupting the soil as little as possible. And if in a home scale, that's pretty easy because you can use a lot of hand tools and you can be mulching with straw or wood chips and, and not having to till is important at a larger scale. You know, it becomes a lot more difficult depending on what crops you have. You know, if you're only growing one crop, 
Um, that's one thing. Or if it's a perennial crop, like half of our farm fields are perennial crops, which means that we don't really have to disrupt the soil very often at all mm. because those plants are staying in the ground for years at a time, which is wonderful and beautiful. But for annual crop production, it, it is challenging not being able to work up the soil and be having, especially like when you're harvesting, everything needs to be true to type. You can't have you know, blue vervain in the yarrow field, and then somebody gets a bag of yarrow that has blue vervain in it. So we're having oh. to really be actively in the fields all the time. But there are different different ways of being able to just be kind to the planet and look at the inputs you're putting in or not having to put into the land. Leaving areas where you don't plant for a while, you it's leaving fallow, which is like not in production, but has a cover crop so that the earth can regenerate itself without having to be amended, bringing outside amendments in, you know, planting for pollinators and planting for animal life and all of those things that we incorporate, having diversity in your garden or on a farm, you're not, not planting just the same plant or plant family. Are there more things you can add to, Jeff? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, crop rotation. Mm -hmm. I think you hit a lot of it. You know, keeping uh, cover cropping strategies. So we're we're keeping soils from being not covered, especially over the course of the winter or during certain seasons where we're having a lot of wind or water erosion. You're not farming on hillsides, things like that. So there's a wide variety of techniques we use to really try to do our best to improve the quality of the soil over time. We we know historically that agriculture is damaging the soil. So we're finding more and more ways to improve the organic matter of our soil. And that's a big part of it. Increasing organic matter, increasing nutrient holding capacity, soil water holding capacity. And then like Elise said, working with nature and the natural system. So we're working with the bugs and the birds and the animals that that coexist with us here at Oshala Farm rather than fighting against them, which is much more of a modern, what they call conventional agricultural system, where we look at all of those as something to to battle versus how do we use those systems. So it's interesting because when we, like in learning areas, when we teach people about using herbs, it's just like you would with good food for nourishment, for healing, diversity in your diet, dealing with toxins, things like that. And you're really, it's the same thought process, whether it's, we know, right? I mean, if we're using herbs for our body or how we are building the soil and treating the earth that we grow the herbs in. I know that's probably really obvious to you because you're in that, but for a lot of people listening, like you said, Jeff, like, the fighting, like people are used to fighting the pests in a farm like mm-hmm. they would be fighting a right. disease. Aleopathic, so, aleopathic mindset, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So is there something about that that did that like was that sort of thinking oh, I don't know, oh, oh, maybe a reason or a why that you like went into this work? I mean, definitely it's it's interesting coming back to what you're saying about the analogy of human health and plant health and the soil and what they eat. I mean, it is so clear that as humans, you don't get to see, or sometimes you can because you just like drop down with too much caffeine or drop up. You know, you see people really like, wow, it's really can see a difference, but bad, maybe unhealthy eating habits. Sometimes people don't seem unhealthy for so long, but with plants, you really can see right away when the soil is not doing great because they're just not able to uptake the nutrients that they need. And then, you know, plants in a different area of the field or something, you can see something's going on. So, and it's pretty quick. It's very apparent because plants grow so quickly. So I I always realize that as a tool of when I'm actually ingesting food myself, it's like food is definitely your medicine, just like the soil is a medicine for for the plants and their structure and their health and all of that. So yeah, it's a really, it's a beautiful correlation. But um, yeah, for us, we really started growing herbs because we wanted to have, we wanted to be able to supply herbs for our own tea blends that we were making. And as we were mm. looking at different sources and thinking that people, you know, wanting to get directly from farms and realizing that a lot of places were distributors and then in researching that, realizing like ni- over 90% of the herbs in the U.S. are imported, we we're like, geez, how do we you know, how do we make a difference in this? Like these herbs can't be that difficult to grow, right? You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so uh, that was the exploration and the road that kind of led us to becoming full-time herb farmers was because Jeff was already growing vegetables and 
were trying to grow these tea blends that we wanted to have a connection with who was, who was growing them. And just, you know, as that, as our ability to grow and finding herb mentors like Mark Wheeler at Pacific Botanicals and people that were willing to share their knowledge and also grow their suppliers, we were able to just learn along the way. So it's been mostly was just a tool of trying to get really great quality herbs and we couldn't find what we were looking for. So we just did it ourselves. And that's been really fun to hear recipients now of the herbs are just so happy to see the quality that they would have been able to grow themselves, if not better. So that's like our main goal is just getting the best quality herbs to people so that they can the medicine that they make really does make a difference. Mm. I love hearing that that background where you two had a genuine need. There was a problem. You're like, <laughs> I, I want higher quality herbs. What, mm-hmm. what am I going to do about it? And you both decided to do something about it and then help other folks as well. And when I first purchased herbs from Oshala, it was amazing because I got this package in the mail and, you know, I opened up the the oat straw and the mugwort and the plantain. And I'd never seen herbs that were dried that were that colorful and, and smelled so much. Like I could smell the herbs while the box was closed. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and, yeah, it was really magical. That's the good test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So I just, I'm so grateful for y'all. And in my own search for finding really high quality herbs, I and I was looking for small scale farms to order from, I felt like it was hard for me to find small scale herb farms and maybe it's just a perception I have. Maybe it's just a marketing thing. But are there are there a lot of small scale herb farms out there? Or I don't know. Or, or are there big obstacles that small to medium <laughs> organic herb farms are facing? Yeah, there's really not a lot of herb farms in the United States in general of any scale. But there are a lot of barriers to entry. One is knowledge. Two is I mean I think ideally you you have to be certified organic and you have to have commercial drying capacity. And, you know, those are fairly costly starts. They're not impossible by any standard, but a lot of people start looking down the road of what it takes to really grow herbs for the industry. And they're like, oh man, that's maybe more than I want to get into. Right. But I think herbs are needed and especially domestically grown herbs are needed. So it'd be nice to see more people do it. But yeah, still to this day, the majority is coming from out of the country. I'm curious too, with with climate change affecting so many farmers' work, have you felt the impacts of climate change affecting your work as herb farmers? And if so, how do y'all manage this as land stewards and business owners? That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, definitely, you know, like everybody, but especially people like ourselves and all of our crew who work outside in a smoky wildfire day that we're having for the first of the season, climate change is definitely definitely happening out here in the field. But the the beautiful thing is the plants actually seem to be more resilient than the humans. They're doing okay with it all. (laughs) We're just trying to catch up with them. But there are sometimes there's less yields because of either too much sun or too little or too much rain or it's either too much or too little of everything, right? It's all the extremes that make it difficult, too hot, too cold at wonky times. And I mean, we're seeing a lot of farmers, luckily not us, but a lot of our farming friends not have water or dealing with actual fire losses. I mean, we've been in a lot of close proximity and dealing with a lot of smoke and a lot of heat, but there's definitely people that have been dealing with a lot more disasters and we we feel that in our community. So it's a never present reality. But we also grow a lot of herbs, so we we're growing 85 crops this year. Wow. And you never really know what season you're going to get. It was a really cold, wet spring. And now we're in a nice heat wave. So different plants respond differently to different seasons. And that's one of the benefits of growing a lot of diversity is not only do we have, you know, a lot of different plant types and, you know, we don't have all the same bugs and pests affecting the same, just one or two crops, but some years, some crops do better than others. And we can kind of balance out the, the risk on the farm by having more diversity that way. Hello, Tara. Hello, Jad. This is fascinating. I I think that I know myself included, I'm guessing you, Tara, as well, but I can't think of someone who probably gets into herbs without thinking to themselves, me, is this something that maybe I can do? Mm. You know, can I mm-hmm. offer this to the world and share and start a farm or products or 
And it is so inspiring to see someone who's like put it all together. I mean, they're even offering classes. They're doing education as well. Right. Yeah. I feel like when I started learning about the plants, I was like, wait, how do I do this all the time? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they have figured out together with their partnership on how to bring their skills. You know, Jeff is a as a farmer and Elise as an herbalist together and make this unique entity that is, you know, I just, you know, I, you know, I guess that's, you know, Kimberly and I did that with learning herbs, but to me, it's like next level when you're doing it, like, or more than next level when you're doing it in real life with people coming in a farm and yeah. <laughs> everything. Totally. And so, um, All the elements, who knows yeah, what, yeah. what kind of fires or storms or whatever it may be, you're, mm. you have to produce these plants. And Oregon is such a magical herbal state. I want to say that most, it seems like most herbal things per capita happen in Oregon. You have herb farm, mountain reserves, a lot of teachers, a lot of schools. It is incredible. And so it's worth a little trip, I think, to visit and these farms and if places to be inspired. Um, Cheryl Tilner, her herbal event in outside of Eugene in 2006 or something, whatever it was, or seven, it it was inspiring because she also had this, she grew the herbs that she made into her medicine and she taught and made products. And, and it was, and she's an ND as well. And, and she was so gracious and letting me come and film the very first herb mentor videos. Wow. Yeah, and I recorded audio for pod for you know it was it, I met the herbalists that would be part of Herb Mentor and, and it was just yeah I just have nothing it seems like you got to go to Oregon to <laughs> you got to do it yeah go um, and speaking of Herb Mentor we have of course a great course on growing herbs so if you want to start out at the home level maybe you could talk a little bit about cultivating wellness Tara so cultivating wellness is your how-to guide, your basic course Mm. on growing healing herbs in your own garden. It's by Sue Cush, and she walks you through just step-by-step basic lessons on how to design and build your garden, how to plan your garden, what herbs to grow, and so many other different lessons, how to harvest your plants. It's it's a really great guide if you're just wanting to get started, or if you do have a little little experience, but you just want to sharpen your tools. And you can plan your garden and that took and we we tell you the 13 herbs that you can start with that that's easy to grow anywhere so um and all you have to do is um well you can you can get a listener discount at herbmentorradio.com i believe why yes you can yes you can and, and subscribe to the podcast there and how um, convenient how convenient so this message brought to you by herb mentor <laughs> and the oregon herbal tourist board <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Back to Jeff and Elise. <laughs> yes. How do you know, like, what to grow? Like, you know, because you're you're a business. I know. I know that Elise is probably like, I would love to grow. These are my favorite herbs. I want to grow just these ones. But then you <laughs> see, like, people. There's a demand for you know. All of a sudden, maybe something's in the news, or there's. Some, do you kind of go with like the steady? reliable ones that people always seem to order or do you have to experiment a lot or is there like a percentage like that like oh you know this much we kind of play with but this we're always growing like that kind of thing so it's it's pretty complex because one is we have no idea and if you have a clue to Mm -hmm. tell us how to know what's going to (laughs) be the next popular herb please let us know but a lot of herbs take a year or two to even harvest so um, that's one thing is it takes time. So by the time something has all of a sudden there's a pandemic and certain herbs are in hot demand and you wish you would have known a year mm-hmm. or two ago. Mm-hmm. But mostly we also look at what we can handle staff wise. So there's only so many of us. There's just about 25 people on Oshala Farm team. And so we also have to think about how much can we do at once? Like we could probably sell all the calendula we could grow, but we don't want to only have calendula on our farm. And we only have so oh. many hands that can pick. So we can only plant so many and we plant right. in successions in different fields. So they're all not coming on at the same time because we oh can't gosh. possibly pick them all at that same time. So there's those barriers too, right? And there's just so many 
so much drying capacity at a time. So a lot of it is this amazing mathematical equation. <laughs> and Which one of you, you know, are good at spreadsheets? Yeah, Jeff. Jeff okay. is a spreadsheet king. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that is pretty interesting. And then also, you know, not having plants in the same field or plant families, that's always rotating. So that also, you know, like, oh, we can't plant this in that area because we just planted that or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but there are the good, the good, and we, we never want to take anything out. We go, this is crazy. Like who plants almost 90 different varieties is, uh, you know, at a commercial scale, like this is crazy. (laughs) We're not doing this. And then, you know, someone ends up teary to take out some plant that we didn't want to take out. And then, you know, (laughs) Mm. like, sorry, no more bugleweed this year. And then of course we got like a purchase order for bugleweed and it's like, okay, fine. We're planting bugleweed again. (laughs) Okay. So... Wow. It's funny. Because not a lot of people, I mean, you, just to make it clear, everyone understands you are selling a lot of bulk herbs on your site and all those herbs are coming from your own farm. You're not a company that's buying from other places and you're a hundred percent. And that's must be rare. I can't think as anyone, I mean, that's, yeah, I can't think of being, I mean, I, I remember that some people did, but I can't think anymore that are still around. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah that's which hard. is, you know, which is, it's, it's great because we have a connection with all those plants. We grew mm-hmm. them ourselves, but it does take somebody dedicated to support the farm because we're not a one-stop shop, right? You're not going to get, you know, cinnamon and cardamom or something that you may want mm-hmm. at the same time. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, hopefully all the herbs you see on the list can get you somewhere with, with what you're working for. So in addition to growing all of these beautiful herbs, you all also have an herbal products line. And I'm not quite sure how you managed to do all of these yeah. things at the same time. It's amazing. But what advice do you have for folks who are interested in starting an herbal products business? Well, I guess the biggest thing is formulating and coming up with products is so much fun. And I think that a lot of us as herbalists, that's just like one of the, one of our joys is coming up with different recipes and formulations. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the major things to think about is the sustainability of what you're formulating. So if you're, you know, using rhodiola, it's like, well, where are you going to get that from? And where is it coming from? Who's growing it? Are you going to have consistent supply? Because it is true if you're selling products, for the most part, you want to have consistency. You know, it's hard when you run out of something. So I think there's that part. And that's kind of what led us into farming because we wanted to have a consistent supply of beautiful herbs at a, at a quality that we weren't willing to do anything less than what we felt really good about sending out. So I think there's that part of it. And just enjoying what you do, get products that, again, I just... I work so much that I, luckily I love what I do. So it doesn't bother me that we're working 50, 60 hours a week Mm. because we love it. So it's good, but product making can be complicated and there's all the lot numbers and all the paperwork and all the things you need to do that is, is, is part of being a legitimate business. So there's that side of it as well. But yeah, I think having good quality product, having products that you, that you love and enjoy yourself. So you're genuinely able to sell what you love and are proud of is is key to success and they're beautiful like i'm on i'm on oshala farm right now just looking at gosh (laughs) the elixirs and the oils look like the most beautiful oils and the packaging everything is just incredible oh thank you thanks yeah at least works really hard on that part of all the marketing side and i think that's part of what you know the reality check of whether you're a farmer or a herbal, you know, product maker, whatever is a lot of us get into this because we love growing plants or we love making products. And there's a lot to running a business outside of the agronomy or the product making. And I think, you know, having that kind of expectation, having a plan for that, and you don't have to do it all. Like it's not just Elise and I, we have a team of incredible mm-hmm. people that work with us now. And, but taking all that stuff on, that's really where, the success comes is being able to balance that. Yeah. And it's the, you know, people will talk to me about business or ask questions about it and they will see the learning herbs that's present. It's been around for 20 years and all that, you know, and that, and that can intimidate people from starting. And, you know, all the things you're talking about from the farming to the remedy making, how, how, what advice do you give people 
that may, you know, have this passion for sharing herbs and, and doing farming or product making, you know, in getting started, because, you know, it doesn't, it seem like it can just seem overwhelming if you're just looking at someone who's been doing it for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think both Jeff and I are, I mean, you know, part of, part of having a business and especially farming is risky business, but I think both of us are kind of risk takers that way. But I think if you're, if you're doing what you love and it is a service to the community and you're doing it with intention of doing the right thing for the planet and for people and the plants, like you can't really go wrong, you know? And if you're willing to work really hard, I mean, that's the other thing, being a business owner, you know, there's not many people I know that are 30 hour a week, business owners. Just so you better love what you do, or it just might be a different business. So we didn't come up like we didn't have necessarily like Jeff and I didn't sit down and think one day let's have this big farm and do all these plants. (laughs) And it just kind (laughs) of happened. Like we needed, we needed good quality plants. We were making teas, like we had farming, we could do it. We found a piece of land. It just all kind of just a lot of hard work and risks and willing to invest and finding the right people came and it just, it just kind of happened organically that way. I think one of the things people tend to do, and we did it too, is we looked at, you know, we would go to Pacific Botanicals or herb farm down the road and be like, wow, we're never going to be anything anywhere like this. Mm -hmm. And we had this plan for a little tiny farm and some education. And you don't need to know what you want to do like the final product. You just need to know what you want to do right now and start down that path. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed when they look at all the parts. And I think even for us, I don't know if we would have done, we would be doing this if we knew everything that was involved. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. (laughs) I'm just going to jump this next hurdle, right? I'm just going to, you know, get past this one roadblock and sure you need to have that overall plan but it's going to evolve as time goes on. You're going to continue to grow. The plan is going to continue to grow and evolve. And, and that's normal. Just start small, start with what you know, where you're comfortable, and then just take on that next hurdle and you'll get down the road. Because I want to inspire people to do this. Like here, we, we're just like, come on, everyone. Let's, let's teach people about herbs. Let's grow herbs. Let's make products. You know, like, so like, yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. And hearing y'all talk about the resilience of the plants and also just the adaptability that y'all have had as business owners. I'm thinking about how for folks who are maybe going to become herb farmers, how we can ensure the resilience and longevity of herb farms. I know there's all these obstacles, but I'm curious, do y'all have ideas about how we could ensure that resilience for maybe new herb farmers or folks who have already gotten a start, but are finding it really hard because of all these obstacles? The first thing that comes to mind is if if we want to see more herb farmers in in whatever country you're in, but we're talking about the U.S. right now, then you need to support them. So you need to buy from them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing, just like small product makers. It's like, if you love what they do, support them. And it can't just be, you know, once every six months or whatever. It's got to be consistent because everybody's bills are consistent. So I would just say that's as consumers and herbalists and product makers by supporting domestic farms, you are you are making a big difference. And I also feel like it's just like it's a food security issue we saw with COVID. It's like all the supply chains stopped. It's like if we don't have herbs growing in the U.S. or whatever country you're in, like you need you need to have that. Like we need to have our medicine chest close to us. So mm-hmm. I do think that's important to support farms that are in your area. So there's that part of like what we can do to support. But then do you want to talk about the other part, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I kind of said it a couple of times earlier, but start with some easy wins. Start with things that you know you can grow or that grow well in your area. You know that you can sell. Start with the top 20 selling herbs in the country. Don't start with something super esoteric. Not that that could be your most profitable crop, but you may only be able to sell five pounds of it. And five pounds does not support an herb farm. So, We'll start with that. And then even when we start a new crop, somebody calls us up and says, hey, we want you to grow something we haven't been growing. Our response is, even if we feel really confident, yeah, we'd like to trial that. And usually that is we're going to grow a row or we're going to grow a tenth of an acre. or We're going to grow some small amount that is enough to really grow the crop, see how it does, see how it does with our systems, but isn't so much that the farm's betting on it. 
and also not in a spot where we're, you know, that customer really depends on us showing up. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then we can come back and like, okay, well, this is what it takes for us to grow it out of Shala. This is what our yield data is. This is, you know, how, you know, when we know we're going to expect to harvest it, this is how we know we're going to dry it. So, you know, fail early, fail often, <laughs> but fail in sizes that you can afford to fail in. Don't put five acres of something you never grown out there and, you know, put the whole, your whole livelihood on it. Start with something that's manageable. And maybe that's still working side jobs. Both Elise and I were working part-time jobs and, or even full-time jobs on the side and we were still growing vegetables and Elise was going to six farmers markets a week slinging veggies wow. in our 1964 Chevy truck every morning at 4 30 a.m oh she'd load up while we were trying to build a client base as herb farmers so just don't necessarily put put everything in put 100 percent, but don't give up on everything else while you're waiting it's going to take a little longer than you maybe hope you know but at the end of the day, I, I think there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of desire. We're not competing against other North American farmers. We're competing against India and China. Oh. But a lot of us and, and Northern Africa and Eastern Europe, that's that's where 90% of the herbs are coming from. Now, at the end of the day, we're not competing against the Pacific Botanicals or the Foster Farms or the Zach Woods or any of the herb farms in this country. There's just not, not enough volume being created. Right, so right. the problem is we're competing against labor where they're sometimes paying people per day or per week what we're paying people per hour. And that's the challenge. We're, we're handpicking flowers. We're doing things that are super labor intensive. So how do we create those opportunities that work for where you are and what you're doing, but also can still compete? Wow. That's that's a lot to think about. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Welcome to our world. Yeah, yeah. But going back to that, so I think, you know, I just wanted to close that with don't be overwhelmed. There is a lot of opportunity for herb farms in the United States. And I think there's a lot that you could do to be profitable and successful, but just be smart about it. To Pete, do farms like yours or the far, the few farms that you that are out there, they have like apprenticeships, internships, or people might like learn first if they want to do this, let alone how to do this? Yeah, I mean, there are internships. Um, Herb Farm has an internship program in Williams, Oregon. We usually tend to just hire people and have them work. And we have had a crew member or two go off and start their own smaller scale or their own business. But usually <laughs> once they end up seeing all the different parts of what the farm is, they're like, I just really like farming. I'd rather just be on the field with the plants and not have to deal with the business mm-hmm. end of things. Mm-hmm. So that is a lot of people just like staying out with the plants that are really wanting to farm. Cause there is a whole other part of running a business, which is not always fun. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, at least in addition to, to, co-running Oshala Farm. You're also on the American Herbal Products Association board. And Mm. I'm curious what inspired you to join the board? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was and is such an honor to be on the board for APA. And I'm still kind of in shock that I'm I'm in the meetings and I'm like, I can't believe I'm in here with all these amazing, like (laughs) kick-ass herbal people, (laughs) but it's great. And, And mostly, I mean, the reason I really wanted to be on the board was because I wanted to have a farmer's voice heard there really, there's a lot of big, bigger scale manufacturing companies and all these people are using herbs, but yet no one was talking about really where the herbs were coming from and who was growing them and how they were being grown. It was more just like, almost like commodity talk. And I was just like, hey, 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 like, is anybody asking the farmers about this? And it just seemed like APA and the people that were there actually were really excited to hear what was happening on the farming end of it. And we're just really welcoming to that voice. And so, yeah, I feel like it's just really amazing to be part of these conversations and also really important. You know, it's like as much as I I don't necessarily like being involved with politics and political groups, but it's like, that's where we're going to see the change. If we're not at the table having these conversations, we can't just complain about it. So, yeah, yeah. so it's great. It's been really interesting going to these meetings and hearing and having input. And we're, we're working right now on a farmer panel from farmers from one farmer from India and Mexico, and then three farmers from the U S that will be presenting at 
Supply Side West, which I think will be the first time in I don't even know how long that farmers are actually speaking about how the industry can help support farms. So yeah, so it's been great. It's been really exciting. And I really encourage people to look into APA, American Herbal Products Association, because they do a lot of policymaking and a lot of support for the herbal product industry. Yeah, I was wondering, um, yeah, if if that board, if the association was taken into consideration, the small farms and seeing what they can do to encourage, mm-hmm. you know, like in p- purchasing from more like, I don't know, thinking some maybe some kind of program where they can purchase certain more from smaller farms or. Yeah. And I think it's important too, for farmers to understand product makers needs. You know, you, we mm-hmm. were kind of talking about that, like having relationships and being able to communicate with your buyer. Like for us, it's really important. If we're going to grow on contract for somebody, we want to really know what that person wants in the end, because after we harvest it and dry it, it's too late. (laughs) So did they want the plant in full flower and partial flower? Did, you know, there's all these other, you know, how did they want it processed and all of those things that need to happen before you even grow and decide if that's something you can actually supply. So I think farmers need to understand too that for product makers, there's certain specifications they need to pass and maybe they need to have, you know, third-party testing and they need to have, or they have to have certain constituents or whatever it is. It's important to have those conversations. So I think it's great to have farmers be in the same room with product makers if they're not already doing the same thing so -hmm. that they know about each other's needs and how they can help support each other. There's also a lot of committees within that, you know, the sustainability committee, the small business committee, there's a lot of groups within APA itself that are looking at a lot of these challenges, you know, supply chain kind of being the overarching, but how are we more sustainable and how do we support more domestic production is a common conversation. But I think, you know, going off what Elise said, anyone who is looking to start an herbal product business or be involved in the herbal product industry I think there's a real benefit of being involved in the American Herbal Products Association and just in the networking and the education you get from being around the industry and the people that are working in it day to day is it's a lot of information that you get to to glean. So it's, it's been really beneficial for us. Great. Well, another way that y'all welcome people into learning more about the herbs is through events on the farm. Could y'all talk a little bit about what kind of events you host at Oshala Farm? Yeah, well, I mean, partly what we had talked about before is we do feel like having a relationship with who grows your herbs is super important. And, you know, knowing how your herbs are being grown and just having that connection and relationship because that in the end will make the best medicine possible for people consuming the herbs. So we do farm tours once a month. They're open to the public. And we also always welcome our customers. Like if you're in the area and you can't make the farm tour, like we always try and make time to show people the farm. But we also host a few, a couple events where people can camp out. Well, actually one event in general is our annual herb camp where people come and actually stay on the camp, stay on the farm for a weekend. And they get to camp out in the fields and make medicine with fresh plant you know, medicine making and we do um, distillations and we do plant walks and um, all kinds of different classes like right out on the field. Farming classes, Jeff does farming classes. So yeah, all kinds of just a, a full packed weekend out in the fields with the plants. And it's really amazing. There's usually about a hundred or so people that come and, um, we just, it's just a, a wonderful time. And it's, its I mean, it's a lot of work for us as a farm because we're a full production farm, yeah. you know, yeah. we're not just like an event center, but for the most part, people, everyone who signs up is like there to be on the farm. So they're just amazing folks that come and we have a great time and play music and make real root beer, you know, with mm. Glen Nagels mm-hmm. roasting roots and chicory and dandelion on the grill and making root beer. And it's just so fun. We have a really great time. We get crazy and serious and it's a well-blended weekend. So gosh, I'm looking at it here. Everybody go, go to the Oshawa Farm <laughs> Herb County. This is all you need. Like, I'm just saying, cause like the first herbal event was always confusing to me, herbalism. Like I, I always love the plants. I learn about the plants and I'd go identify them and all. But early on, maybe in the early 90s, you know, I got some some books and I couldn't make that 
transition from the book to the actual remedy. And I was lucky to have a herbal Northwest herbal fair near me back in the late nineties. And, and it was at that event, casual out in the field, people are harvesting and making tinctures and showing how to decant and all these hands-on things with the community. And there's nothing to jumpstart and make you feel like a confident home herbalist than doing something just like your herb camp. So yeah. I just want to say that. Well, we hope can... to see you here someday. Yeah. John. Oh, yeah. Man. And, and, <laughs> and it's in Grants Pass. So can you tell tell folks like where well, that is in the in geography? Yeah. So it's actually you know we live in the country. So okay. Grants Pass is is our mailing address, but we oh. really live in Applegate, which doesn't have a zip code. So that's mm-hmm. why it's Grants Pass. <laughs> but it's in Southern Oregon. So we're in between Grants Pass and Ashland. If people know that area mm-hmm. and we're just over over the border from California only about seven miles actually but as a as a bird flies oh, not wow. as a car drives not as a car so, drives right yeah yeah <laughs> so but yeah it's in the beautiful southern Oregon Applegate Valley and we're filled with a lot of ag- other agricultural farms and the wine industry and herb farm Pacific Botanicals strictly medicinals we're all kind of in that little mecca here so oh um, yeah so, so did you ever talk about like starting like, you know how there's like a winery area often in, a, you know, in a, or a cidery in our area. We have three cideries. Is there, I mean, I, I maybe there isn't, I just haven't heard about it, but is there some sort of like, you know, herbal valley going on where you have these companies where <laughs> exactly. people can tour and take classes and try things? And Yeah, well, we do. Um, there are quite a few different schools that come and, st- and come to the farms as like a weekend event. So they'll go visit those different, those different farms and us. And yeah, so it's fun. And there's, there's, we have a lavender festival in July as well. So yeah, it's a pretty cool spot to be. I'm actually thinking about next year for herb camp on the Friday before to do a United Plant Savers fundraiser and do one of those things where we go to all those different farms and get to actually maybe tour some of like the herb farm, like lab and the farm itself and things like that. And have that be a separate kind of event, but like an add on to be a United Plant Savers mm-hmm. fundraiser. Mm-hmm. So, And there's like all kinds of classes. You have botanical ink making, distillation, like aromatherapy stuff. And Yeah, this weekend. Oh, so so Erica, Erica is here this weekend. Erica Galantine from Sovereignty Herbs is here doing a sacred ritual distillation workshop, which I am so excited about. We just opened the still up for the first time, the big mama still. And so we're going to be doing hydrosols on the farm because we have an amazing array of fresh plant material so we can do that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we're going to be doing some heliochrysum hydrosol this weekend, which is going to be amazing. That's going to be divine. I know. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Elise and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on our mentor radio. It was just so great. Gosh, this hour goes fast, doesn't it? And I really thank you for doing what you do. And I hope people out there are inspired to like, not just learn from from you and and do events like this but also maybe be inspired to maybe like maybe like somebody listening is going to start something like that someday yeah you know, like they're going to start some someplace they're going to start an herb conference or an event or a farm or a company and, and you know you can do it we we all totally. do <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly thank you for doing the good work you do oh thank you we appreciate it thank you so much oh yeah. and for folks too who do you want to get some amazing herbs or who want to go visit your farm? They can find you at oshalafarm.com. Yes. Mm, thank you. Well, Tara. Well, John. That was another awesome interview. Uh, another one for the books or the, or the podcasts. For the podcasts. This is. I know. Well, and you can read it because we do transcripts on all of these. So you can we read do along. Indeed. You can sing along. Yes. Sometimes I mute my audio and I go through and I sing the podcast uh, to myself. It. Wow. To myself. Cool. Yes. Yes. It's very, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, you know, you know, I'm an empty nester these days. I get you bored. got a lot of time. On <laughs> <laughs> so I know people don't have a lot of time and you can l- learn about an amazing herb in just two or three minutes. And, um, and I'm going to hand it over to Tar to do that. Right. Yes. Speaking of time and learning about an herb for two or three minutes, it's time for an <laughs> herb note. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to Herb Notes. I'm Tara Ruth from Learning Herbs. With a name like Stinging Nettle, you might think you want to avoid a nettle patch at all costs. 
sure the fresh leaves and stems of stinging nettle, Urtica dioica, can irritate the skin upon contact. But here's the thing, stinging nettles are also full of many healing gifts. It may seem counterintuitive, but once you learn more about the magic of nettles, I have a feeling you'll be reaching for nettles a whole lot more, even if you are wearing a glove while you do it. So let's dive into three benefits of stinging nettle. One, nettle can help address seasonal allergies. As a strong anti-inflammatory herb, nettle excels at supporting the body through seasonal allergies. Every year, I start working with nettle leaf in the late fall to prepare myself for the seasonal allergies I often get in the springtime. I've noticed that taking nettles helps dramatically reduce my spring allergy symptoms, including my runny nose, itchy eyes, and sneezing. And I'm not alone. Nettle is well known as an ally for addressing hay fever. Two, nettle can address general inflammation. Just as nettle leaves can support the body with inflammatory seasonal allergies, nettle can also help address general inflammation in the body. As an underlying cause of many common diseases, chronic inflammation is an important issue to address holistically, and anti-inflammatory herbs like nettle can be one key part of a holistic approach. I love incorporating nettle into my food, whether it's in a nettle soup, smoothie, or lasagna. Three, nettle is a nutrient-dense food and tea. In addition to being anti-inflammatory, nettle leaves are also very nutritious and mineral-rich. With their rich mineral content, there are many benefits of nettle leaves. They can help strengthen bones, hair, and teeth, and they can also help address muscle cramping caused by mineral deficiencies. To extract nettle's nutrients, I like to create a nourishing infusion, or long steep tea, combined with oat straw, another mineral-rich plant that can help balance the astringency of nettle. So to recap, here are three ways I like to work with nettle leaves. One, I work with nettle to help support my seasonal allergies. Two, I add nettle to my food to help address general inflammation. Three, I enjoy drinking a long steeped mineral rich nettle and oat straw tea. Want to learn more about nettle's benefits? Visit herbnotes.cards to grab a free deck of our top 12 herb notes. You'll learn all about common herbs like catnip, yarrow, echinacea, cinnamon, and more. This has been Herb Notes with me, Tara Ruth. Catch you next time. Herb Mentor Radio and Herb Notes are 100% sustainably wildcrafted podcasts written, performed, and produced by Tara Ruth and me, John Gallagher. Sound engineering by Zach Frank. Visit herbmentorradio.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and to find out how you can be part of Herb Mentor, which is a website that you must see to believe. Herb Mentor Radio is a production of learningherbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you very, very, very much for listening.